0: Let's pray together. Thank you, great Father, for the gift of the Sabbath, a gift of a day uh, to worship and rest. We thank you for a holiday weekend and the gift of freedom that uh, we so often take for granted or pervert to our own. Uh, liberty and self-service. Lord, we pray uh, this weekend that you would enable us to uh, rightly grow in the exercise of our freedom, to love our neighbors and love you well. We pray for our loved ones and friends, members of our church, and families that may be traveling, watch over them in safety, but make them a blessing uh, to the family and friends to which they travel. Uh, Grant our own pastor uh, refreshment and rest in as many weeks of travel ahead. Uh, Lord, we ask as we come to you this morning on a, it feels like it should be winter, cold, dull, rainy day, uh, that you would uh, pierce through our darkness with the bright light of your word. Show us, Jesus, your glory and goodness. Uh, Help our hearts to come alive anew for you. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our good and the good of our neighbors. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Good morning, friends. My name is Derek. I work for RUF. And before we go one inch further, I'd like to invite our four to seven-year-olds to get out of here. You can join someone much more pleasant than me in the back of the church, and you'll have a lovely time. But you should know that while you're gone, we're going to talk about you. That's going to happen. So we'll give them a second to get out of here before we start talking about them. Uh, In the last few weeks, uh, we've been slogging our way through Matthew 22, 21. I say slogging because uh, it's been a contentious couple chapters. For the sake of the context here, Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem, and that was much ballyhooed and celebrated. Much less celebrated was his cleansing of the temple, and since then, it's been tense, been tense. Um, Jesus has offered some rather scathing parables, and then that's been followed up with a with a bit of questioning. Um, there are four questions here that we've been working through. Uh, two of them have already been asked: one about taxes and the state, second, about death and resurrection, giving, of course, credence to that old thing. The only guarantees in life are death and taxes. It's funny that they start there. Uh, today, the final two questions. And as we work through those questions, you should expect to be a little confused. You should expect to be confused. Who is who is questioning who here? And while we're on the matter of questions, I'd like you to do me a favor. Just take a second and think about it. What one, you only get one, question Would you just love to ask Jesus when you see him? What one question, would you love to ask Jesus when you see him? All right, our text is Matthew chapter 22. Um, The last verse of the text is omitted from your bulletin, so I'm going to let you know ahead of time when I read it. I didn't make it up. It's in the Bible. All right, so Matthew 22, 34 to 46. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him, teacher, which is the great commandment and the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets." And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. A couple years ago when I was still working uh, with RUF at Pitt, it was around Christmas time. We were preparing for our big Christmas party, which was an insane week. And we'd had a ton of students in the house that week to help out. Um, prepare food, decorate, manage our madness with us. And that Thursday night at large group, I used that as an opportunity in a sermon. The sermon was about the persistent widow who just keeps asking questions. Um, And so I asked this question in large group. I asked, hey, how many of you were in my house this week? And like 20 people raised their hand. And then I asked, just in general, um... While you were there, how many questions did my kids happen to ask you? And they sort of chuckled. And one person raised their hand and said, maybe 20. And then someone else raised their hand and said, maybe 35 or 40. And then someone else just sort of shouted out, I don't know about your kids, but your wife asked me at least 100 questions. <laughs> so if you know my wife, that completely makes sense. Uh, If you're a parent or you've been around kids much, you expect them to ask questions. Sometimes it can be a bit much. um, But the fact that they're asking questions at all is great, right? It shows that they trust you, that they're willing to listen and learn. And when those questions cease, if they cease, you might wonder, what exactly is going on in that noggin of yours? And are you still willing to learn from us or learn at all? And sometimes as a parent or just a teacher, a caregiver, uh, you can't just wait for them to ask the question, right? You'd like for them to, but you have to ask the question. You have to ask the important question that needs to be asked. Now, some of you are like my wife and my children. You have hundreds and hundreds of questions. I'm not like you. I'm too lazy to be that curious. Uh, You have lots of questions. Some of them are for anyone that will give you the time of day. And some of them are for a pastor. And some of them are for God. And some of them are questions of curiosity. And some of them are questions of pain and loss. And I just want to encourage you in general, you have good reason. We have good reason to believe that like a good parent values the questions of the children that he loves, God Want you to bring your questions to him. Having said that, that's not what this text is about today. <laughs> I didn't need to say it. Your questions are important. Uh, but I think we're going to see today that the questions that God has for us, maybe they're a little more important, at least sometimes. See, Jesus has got questions too. And... Our questions often, though important, can seem so pressing that we might overlook or undervalue the questions that God is asking us, and and that would be tragic because he is using these questions in our lives to teach us, to grow us, to show us that we might come to know him and love him as we're called to this morning, we're going to encounter this questioning Jesus, and we're going to engage him in his words, and as we do so, we're going to discover more of him and his love for us, okay? And so, uh, for you fastidious note-takers, and I don't see any of you, where, where are all my students taking notes? That's what happens when school's over, everyone stops taking notes. That's cool. I'm okay with that. I don't take notes anyway. Um, here's your outline. Uh, Jesus asks more he asks more of us. Uh, Jesus is more, and Jesus gives more. first points a bit long, the last two a little bit shorter. but first, Jesus asks more. The context here again, is this contentious, ongoing debate. and here, a lawyer from the Pharisees comes and asks a question to test him that shows us his motives are not the most pure, a little dubious. And the test is simple, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is something the Pharisees would have debated and liked debating because they're Bible nerds. And uh, I can identify with that. Um, But it's sort of a trick question because in their minds, almost any command of the possible hundreds of commands, some written, some cultural and oral, almost any of those elevated above the others would relativize the others and, in effect, make Jesus in their minds something of a liberal. In other words, to them, everything was important. Everything was really important. And Jesus answers this question in a really remarkable way that somehow manages to question us. It's an answer that questions us. That being said, his answer on the surface is unoriginal. Verse 37, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, The the first answer, the question to the greatest commandment, Jesus' answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, is from Deuteronomy 6. His answer, in effect, is, oh, you're wondering, like, what's the Greatest esoteric, special. It's that thing every single one of you, including your kids, say every single morning. This is not a mystery. We know this. We all know this. It, it reminds me, I read this recently, that uh, about 100 years ago, Karl Barth, sort of a famous, if any theologian can be famous, uh, famous neo-orthodox theologian Karl Barth was asked, which profound esoteric mysteries did he love to dwell upon and think about and he responded jesus loves me this i know boy the bible tells me so that man got a lot of things wrong he got that right that's lovely right and this is sort of what jesus is saying here and then he responds from leviticus 19 the command to love your neighbor as yourself. These are very well-known scriptures, all together, unoriginal. And yet, somehow in the way Jesus presents them, somehow fresh and original. And that's because he presents them into, uh, together in such a way that they are inseparable. Ask for one command, he gives two, implying their inseparability. One is spiritual. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love that especially revealed person, Father, Son, and Spirit, and those particular spiritual ways that have been revealed with word and prayer and sacrifices and obedience. Spiritual. Also, love your very real, bothersome, stinky, noisy neighbor in very real ways. Spiritual and social. Together. Always. Jesus does prioritize. One is first and greatest. But the second is right there and inseparable. And his disciples, who might not have gotten it then, did get it. I think it's in your additional readings. You, you can find it in 1 John chapter 4, where John, the beloved disciple, writes, If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. He doesn't love God. You can't fail in one and pass the other. They are inseparable. They're also irreducible. All your heart, all your mind, all your will, as yourself. We don't get to set the terms, negotiate the terms, set the parameters. We will always minimize those of you that know, I was referred to last week by Matt, who slandered me in public a little bit as a, as a grumpy pastor. He didn't really slander me. It's what friends can do to one another. And uh, anyway, this, this proves it. I was driving somewhere through Oakland. I, by and large, I hate slogans. I just hate slogans. This is why all American marketing is lost on me. I'm just like, I hate you. I hate your slogan. I hate your slogan. Someone, had, and if you wrote this slogan... I'm sorry, (laughs) like if you work in Oakland and this was your doing, you can come and rebuke me later and I'll apologize, and then we can talk about how much I hate your slogan. (laughs) Um, But someone had written on a sign, like placed somewhere on a street in Oakland. It was a business, and it simply said, your loving self is your living self. Think about that for a second. The implication is, all you have to do to be a loving person is just be you, just exist, and you're a loving person. Forgive me, I think that's really dumb. <laughs> but that is our nature, to minimize the standards of love, of what's asked of us in loving God and loving others. The call to love God with all our heart, soul and mind. It's easy for us to say, like, "Oh, I'm me, I'm not so good at the will, sometimes bad with the will, not so good with the heart. Pretty good with the mind. But actually, and some of you are different kinds of people. The reality is, uh, this isn't the Wizard of Oz. You don't get a mind and you get a will and you get a heart. All of us are broken all the ways. What's asked for here is wholehearted integrity. Love God with all of you. And no particular part of you is very good at this on its own. We're called to love God with a united heart and great love. And the call to love our neighbor as ourselves. I heard one of my kids recently uh, completely butcher the golden rule in the most self serving fashion ever. People are supposed to love me the way I'm supposed to be loved or something version like that. And I'm like, you're a very American child. Um, but Jesus summarizes this. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. So what's like to love your neighbor as yourself? We want to pick the who and we want to pick the how and we want to pick the how much. And God does not give us that priority that freedom, that prerogative. The terms of love are irreducible. Also, lastly, inescapable. Jesus concludes, all the law and the prophets depend on these. On these, all the law and prophets depend. It's it's not so much, in other words, that the law ends here, that you can get like a B plus all the way to here and loving God with your whole heart. And loving neighbors yourself is like what you need the extra credit to push you over into excellence. That's not it. It's just the opposite. The law begins here. This is Christianity 101. This is where it starts. This is not the cherry on top of your good, I'm a good person performance. This is what it's like to know God, become like God. Love God and love neighbor. This is the beginning of fulfilling the law. To love him and to love others. So this is what I mean. Jesus gives an answer, right? But man, that answer puts you to the test. Right? Don't you feel, don't you feel examined? I feel examined. His question asks more. It's not like a litany of things, like, I need you to do these 25 things. No, I'm just asking, he's just asking us to do two things, but in such a way that we're undone, that we have to admit, I, I don't think I can do it very well at all, most days, especially when I'm awake. That's, that's how this question comes across to me, right? Simply put, do you love Do you love him as you ought to love? Do you love your neighbor? I I, I know some of you are enough like me. I've been in church long enough, not just in church, every church, to know like there's a bunch of ready made, I've already thought about this so many times, excuses that you've immediately gone to in response to this. For some of you, that is some version of, Yes, but this is an impossible ideal. This is an impossible ideal in this world. Uh, Yes, in your current state, yes, this is impossible. You can't love God with your whole heart or your neighbor as yourself. But you were created for this. This is what you were made for. This is actually what you long for. You really want this. And it is God's will for his people. It doesn't really matter if it's an ideal. It's what you're called to. And some of you, maybe the kind of people that like to check off lists and feel good about yourself, you might be sort of bothered. Would God really ask me to do something that I can't do? That I can't do well? And the answer to that pretty simply is yes, absolutely, certainly he would. He does. (laughs) He would certainly ask you to do things you're not good at. Because it's good for you, it's good for us, it's what he wants, it's the best thing, it's the great thing that he wants for us, to become the kind of people that love him and love one another. Uh, Some of you, of course, would say, no, of course I can't do this, but I'm still pretty mature. I know a lot of stuff, I do a lot of stuff, I sometimes like the right stuff, or the right people, and again... This double love commandment to love God and love neighbor is Christianity 101. This is not doctoral level Christianity. This is where it begins. There is no maturity apart from this. This is what maturity looks like. And there may be a few others of you. I don't know. I don't know everyone here. But you hear this and you say, okay, I've heard this and I've heard this and I've heard this but you know what? I've almost never seen it. I've never really seen people love God. I certainly don't see Christians love their neighbor as they should, and frankly, I'm a little tired of this. I'm a little tired of this. I think I'm just going to focus on myself, and I need you to hear me, if I could say it that strongly. That focusing on yourself is not going to lead you to the kind of wholeheartedness that you're looking for. It's just not. That focus on ourselves is how we got gotten this mess to begin with. <laughs> no. This call to love God and others is the purpose, is the mission, is the challenge that you long for. And it is what this world needs the most. It really is. So Jesus here has answered this first question with an answer that questions us. And for the most part, I hope, it leaves us, it leaves us nodding. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm called to. But also asking, okay, how? How do I do this? How, how do I love as I'm called to love? And in just a second, Jesus is going to ask a question that points us to the How? We're going to see here that Jesus is more. Verses 41 to 45. Jesus has these folks gathered together and said, like, Ah, why should I miss a great opportunity? I'm going to ask you a question. So he asks the Pharisees gathered a question What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? Sort of a Derek's unofficial paraphrase. What kind of Messiah, what kind of king are you expecting? and they give the very much expected answer. This is the standard issue, short answer. The son of David, someone from the lineage of David, as has been promised in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, other places. What's absent from their answer is any real uh, vulnerability about their own personal or cultural historical longings, expectations, which were largely of, hey, man, we could use some winds around here. We've been getting our hineys kicked by the nations for, I don't know, a couple hundred years. Greeks, Syrians, and Babylonians, and the Romans, and it's, it's not supposed to be this way. We were supposed to be the glorious blessing to the nations. And, uh, Yeah. We would we like the dude, whoever he is, the, the, the promised dude of David, to come and reestablish the glory. That's what they want. You even see hints of it in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus comes back from the dead and gathers his men together, they're like, is it time now? Is now the time for the restoration of the kingdom and the glory? In other words, a donkey-riding, healing prophet Is not what they were looking for. And that's largely what they've seen in Jesus so far. But Jesus here asks another question to them that shows them their expectations are far too low. In verse 44, he he draws their attention to the words of David. And I love how he speaks here, how Jesus speaks of the words of David. David's words spoken by the Spirit, he's calling this scripture, In Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then having reflected on that a little bit, Jesus simply asked them, how is it that David calls this promised one Lord? How is the one promised son of David called his Lord? Jesus is asking, given that this promised one is David's Lord, how could he just be David's son? In other words, gentlemen, why aren't you expecting more out of this Messiah? The Messiah should exceed all your expectations. And Jesus goes on to show that this is the exalted one. Psalm 110 pictures us, shows us a king exalted, reigning at the right hand of the Father on high. Included in your bulletin there in the additional readings from Isaiah chapter 11. This is only possible if the Messiah is the eternal son, who is somehow the root of David, i.e., I raised David up, I put David there, and he, out of great humility, chooses to later become a shoot, a son of David, born of him in time. And as the exalted one, I love this, the irony of the situation, because it would feel far from it, in the temple courts constantly harassed by people that don't believe him i think jesus in some way is saying yeah it's happening right now in some ways the, the reigning one the, the he, he the reigning one the exalted one who will silence his enemies that, that includes you you rather dubious testers pharisees The ones that questioned his authority. This all began back in chapter 21. By what authority do you do these things? Just who do you think you are? And here at the end, Psalm 110, I think he's telling them. The promised son of David, who is the eternal son, who reigns at the right hand of the Father. They are unable to hear it. They get enough to just shut up ask nothing more we'll talk about that in a moment it's not the best response but with those of us for those of us with ears to hear we should get this at least jesus is more than we expected more than they expected more than we expected he's the exalted one and so i have to ask you this question what are you expecting out of jesus what are you expecting from him That's a dangerous tricky question in 21st century america we can make a long Santa Claus like list of things we want personal peace and prosperity and everything else. For some of you, maybe a little moral clarity. For some of you, a little divine assistance in your daily living. For some of us, the occasional feel good pick me up. None of that is necessarily wrong. The question simply is is it enough? One of the scholars I read this week in preparation for this simply summarized it this way. The futility of messianic hopes which do not rise above the earthly plane. Did you get that? Futility of messianic hopes which do not rise above the earthly plane. In other words, I mean, are you expecting out of Jesus what any, I don't know, half-certified self-help guru Or recently elected two to four year politician could deliver? Because if that's the case, you're expecting far too little from him. I don't know. I feel like this text is challenging us a little bit. Is there enough awe of Jesus in your life? The exalted one, sitting at the right hand of the Father for all eternity. Is there just a little bit of fear? I think there should maybe be a little bit of fear. Not I'm scared of Jesus, but maybe some version of he is the exalted one. And he just commanded me to love him with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know I don't do that very well. Is there a a little something in there? I think there should be something in there, right? How about this? I think this is probably the best place to be. Do you have great hopes? Not just for yourself, but for the Messiah, for things that only Jesus can do. Restoration in your life, restoration in your family. Great hopes for his kingdom. Great hopes for his church, for his people, for his own glory, for your own growth and love. Friends, I think we should have those because Jesus is more. He's more. He asks more. He is more. Lastly, he gives more. This text is full of two things. Well, it's full of a bunch of things, but two things in particular. Scripture, lots of Scripture and lots of questions, okay? And have you ever considered... Or ask yourself, maybe, why, why is Jesus put up with all these questions? These questions aren't even necessarily asked, honestly. They're, they're traps. They're tests. It's uh, especially true given the fact that he knows, he knows his time is limited. He knows exactly where he is and what's going to happen. And, and, and not weeks, days, hours... He's going to meet his end. He knows this, and he chooses to spend his time arguing with some hard-hearted knuckleheads who he answers, and they still won't believe. Why does he do this? Uh, Karl Marx, on his deathbed, last words, as we know, said, Go on, get out. Last words are for fools who have not yet said enough. I sort of get it. That might be something I would say. (laughs) Um, at the same time, that is so far from Jesus' attitude, but why would he continue to do Q&A with these people? Because it's who he is, because he, he, out of love and grace and mercy, just gives more. He questions for their good, for our good, and he here In his answer to their question, and then in the question he asked them, he is busy revealing what they and we need to know. Revealing God's great aim that we become lovers of God and lovers of others. What we were created for. Not settling for some paltry earthly aim. Revealing in this question and answer the greatest command the command to love, and the greatest truth, that Jesus is more. He's the exalted one. Now, it might seem like we've been talking about two different things. Semi-unrelated topics, a great command to love, and the revealing of the great one, the greatness of the Messiah. But I think Jesus here in his kindness brings them together for us, puts the the pieces together. And and he shows us how the, the first thing is supposed to be a response to the second. The great command to love God and neighbor is always a response. It's actually in the text. It's in the text we read. I don't know if you saw it. It's sort of sneaky and small, but it's 100% definitely there in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God. might not still see it. That's Old Testament Bible language. The Lord, the covenant God. And how did you become his people? How did he become your God? Uh, He did that. All grace. You were nobody but I made you my prized possession. Slaves in Egypt, I pursued you and brought you out. All grace, you're mine, every bit of it. I did it, I pursued you. That's how you became my people. It's always response. The Ten Commandments. How do we love God? How do we love neighbor? How does it start? I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. It starts with grace. And we're called to love in response, and what we have here is the reality that we're called to respond in love to the Lord who promised to redeem us by a son. First, the son of Eve, who later became clear was the son of David, who later became clear with the divine son, who later became clear was also a priest after the line of Melchizedek. Why would I say that? Because it's in Psalm one ten, and when Jesus quoted Psalm one ten, they would have known. That's the very next line. Priest like no other who offers the final sacrifice that makes us right. In other words, as we see and come to know the truth of who Jesus really is, of how much more he is in his exalted greatness, of how much more he's given in his sacrificial love for us, We grow in our faith. And our growing faith looks like greater love for him and for others. Uh, John Bunyan, old Puritan, I believe this is right, wrote somewhere. uh, How's it go? Run, run, the law demands, but gives neither feet nor hands. Explain that real quick. You can read the command to love, love God, love neighbor. That's a command, and you can try your hardest for the rest of your life. And outside of something happening in your heart to help you do that, it will probably only make you miserable. (laughs) Instead, um, fly, fly, the gospel sings bids us rise and gives us wings the good news jesus enables you to get up off the ground out of your self-preoccupation and out of glad response for his love for you fly love god love others in other words put simply as possible the way you keep the third question the command to love is you cherish the truth of the fourth. Jesus is the great exalted Messiah. And in his greatness, he gives you everything you need. I'm going to bring this to a close real quick. How do you respond to this? I'm going to throw a few things out there real quick. One, I want to encourage you, if you're the kind of person that has a thousand questions, and some of them are painful, ask this. Ask them to friends, to pastors, to people that care, to people that might be helpful, and ask them to God. I I do want you to be aware, however, that there could possibly come a time where you don't get all the answers you need or you get all the answers you need and it still might not fix everything. These folks got all the answers. and They're left with silence. And this is not a good silence. There's a difference between silence of respect, like, okay, and silence of resignation. This is a silence of resignation. This this is an indication that Jesus is victorious over them in a way that's not good for them. And so along with encouraging you to ask all the questions you have, I, I have to ask you this. By all means, every single one of you, be as open as you possibly can to the probing questions of Jesus. They're there for your good. He means by those questions to lead you to really know what you're like and what he's really like, that you might know his great love for you and be changed by that love and become the kind of person that he created you to be, that he wants you to be, so that you might respond with greater faith and greater love. I would love now to collect all of the answers that you wrote at the beginning. I asked you to write a question. I'm going to go through them one by one. Remember that? What questions you're going to ask Jesus? Um, I'm not going to do that, of course. Um, I am sort of curious what you wrote. What I need you to know is I'm pretty sure almost all of you are wrong. Um, Sorry. (laughs) I'm a jerk. Um, I'm I'm sure I'm wrong, too. I, I think, no doubt, we all have questions, and lots of them are very important. And I'm sure Jesus is willing to hear them. I am fairly confident when we see Jesus, there will only be one question. This is from a hymn, my favorite hymn, actually. Um, First verse goes like this, Um, if I can find it. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake my Lord should take frail flesh and die? That's the question, right? Isn't that the question? That's the question. Let's pray. great lord jesus spilled a lot of words this morning about some very simple truths that you call us to love we can't do it on our own you've done great things for us lord we pray um that you be kind by your spirit to do what we can't do help us to see what we really are and see how we need to grow and to see you in your greatness and in 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 your great humility the the extent to which you've loved us we pray you be kind to uh, use not only this message but this meal to grow our apprehension of that to grow our faith in you that we might love you as you deserve love our neighbor as this world so desperately needs we ask these things in jesus name amen Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, gathered his men together and gave to them and to us this meal. It's quite a gift. Jesus is the one that gives more. In this meal, we see a number of things. We see a picture of what Jesus did for us. That because we are, by nature, not altogether lovely or loving, we we couldn't find a way to make ourselves right with God. So Jesus came and did what we couldn't do. The only one who ever loved perfectly, took flesh, son of David, lived perfectly, loved perfectly, and was broken, body broken, blood poured out that we might be forgiven and made right. What a gift, shows us what Jesus has done. But that's not all. By this meal, And the message, the gospel that we see in it, the Holy Spirit works in us and reminds us, this is how much he loves you right now. And that message grows our faith in him, our apprehension of him, and enables us right now to grow in love for him and others. And lastly, it's also a picture of what's to come. We seldom have the force of imagination, the biblical will, if you will, to imagine Jesus as the exalted one. But there will come a day when we see him as he is, reigning at the right hand of the Father. And when we do, we will have a meal together. This reminds us that meal to come, right? Yep. This is what this is. What a great gift from Jesus who gives more. We have to ask ourselves who's this meal for? And it would be really, really easy on the back side of what we just said to to say something like, it's for those who love God with their whole heart, soul, mind, strength, and neighbor. So we're all excluded. Jesus' meal alone, um, this meal is for those who know that apart from the work of Jesus in their hearts, they are loveless, not particularly lovely. And who, in recognition of that need and knowing who Jesus is as a great one, have latched on to him by faith and expressed that faith by becoming members of a Bible-believing church. If that's your confession, that's your experience, this meal's for you. Even if you have a thousand questions, this meal's for you. If that's not your experience, that's not your confession, you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, this meal won't do you any good. It's not going to help you love anyone anymore. It really won't. Rather, I I would love for you to wrestle with the questions that Jesus puts in this this text. In particular, that one question, you might find it in your bulletin. Who do you say that I am? Wrestle with that. Uh, This table's been carefully prepared. There is bread with and without gluten. There's grape juice with and without alcohol in it. Um, I don't remember which is which, so be careful when you get up here. Uh, But we don't trust these elements of their own to change anything about us, our faith or our love. Rather, it's according to the promise. The Spirit will work by these things and strengthen our faith. So let's pray and ask these elements to be. Set apart from their common usage to do us some good. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you that even in your dying hours, you give more. You give us a gift to accommodate us in our weakness, to remind us that as sure as we touch this bread, taste this wine, so sure is your love for us. Pray that in this meal, you would lift us up by your spirit to help us comprehend how great, how deep, how wide is your love. Grow us in our faith. Help us to love you as you deserve, that we might be a blessing to the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.